Well, I want to start this morning with a few light bulb jokes. A few light bulb jokes. How many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, at last count, it was 16 million, but they can't agree if the bulb needs changing. Or, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, they're not sure, but they've appointed a committee to study the issue. Here's another. How many Mennonites does it take to change a light bulb? Well, eventually about five, but if they had, it, if they had to, they could get along fine without a light bulb. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, the answer is three. One to change the light bulb, one to bless it, and one to pour the sherry. Those Episcopalians. How many Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Eleven. One to change the bulb and then ten to organize the potluck supper that follows. Here's my favorite. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? <laughs> How many Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone else tries to change the light bulb, the light won't come on. <laughs> That's pretty funny. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to change the light bulb and eight to sell raffle tickets on the old one. <laughs> We're headed down the home stretch. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but let's not offend anybody by the change. How many Charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to change the light bulb, and two to bind the spirit of darkness while he does it. <laughs> and last but not least, how many Calvary Chapel folks does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but he's always late showing up for church. All right, now that I've offended everyone in the room, we can get started. The point of the exercise is to show that every church group has its own flavor, its own focus. And that's okay. I believe that God has included into his family a wide array of churches to reach a wide variety of people. This world is a big place, if you haven't noticed, full of diverse people. And God wants his church to be a big tent. There should be room for many different stripes and types. But there should be no room for discord or jealousy or needless fracturing. As Paul asked in verse 3, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal in behaving like mere men. In other words, it grieves God's heart when a church or a fellowship of churches or a denomination claims to be the only group that pleases God. The Lord disdains such exclusivity. Say you're the father of four kids, like me, and one of your kids goes a little bit sideways. He or she picks up some bad habits, maybe stains the family name. Oh, you'd be grieved, and you would... Do all you could to correct the wayward child. But if you're like me, you're sure not going to disown that child. You're not going to write off your own flesh and blood. And if one of your other children suggested that the prodigal was less a child than they were, you'd bristle up. No way. That sibling may be going through a tough patch, but he's still your kid. 
he or she still belongs in the family. Yet this kind of acceptance was not what was happening in Corinth. Just the opposite was occurring. Believers in Jesus were pulling apart. They were splintering. On the surface, they were dividing over personalities, rallying around a favorite teacher. The real problem was the envy and pride that had burrowed its way into their hearts. Their arrogance had erupted into a better-than-thou snobbery. Brothers and sisters in Christ were turning on each other, and it all literally turned God's stomach. Paul says to them in verse 4 that this kind of behavior is a mark of carnality. He says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? I mean, this sounds like what you'd hear on the elementary school playground. Well, my dad is better than your dad. These spiritually juvenile Christians in Corinth had their own version. Well, my pastor is better than your pastor. And you'd expect to find this kind of quarreling and dissension in the church nursery, but certainly not in the sanctuary. This carnality was evidence the Corinthians were babes in Christ. Like kids, they were glorying in their heroes. They had polarized around the two New Testament teachers, Paul and Apollos. Fern, I told you Paul and Apollos, not Paulie and Apollo. My, my, my. There they are. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that nowhere in the New Testament did either Paul or Apollos suggest such a division. Oh, it's true, these two men were different. Paul was from Asia, Apollos was from Africa. Paul was trained in Jerusalem, Apollos was from Alexandria, schooled in the schools in Alexandria, probably influenced by Philo's more philosophical approach to the Scriptures. There's no doubt these two men were cut from different cloth. They were from different countries, different continents, different cultures. They may have even been a different color. I imagine Paulus a tad more scholarly than Paul. And Paul may be a bit more straightforward than Apollos. But nowhere does either man diminish the other. They had nothing but mutual respect and love for one another, and I'm sure it grieved them both that the Corinthians had used their names and their diverse ministries to justify their petty and their haughty prejudices. Actually, the problem here had little to do with Paul and Apollos. The Corinthians were prideful. They were competitive rather than cooperative. These men were just a convenient wedge to use to deepen the divide. And this is why Paul asks in verse 5, he says, Who then is Paul? And who is this Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. They were just ministers. It's Jesus that you believed in. In essence, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, I hope you don't get a letter in the mail and then fall in love with a postman. It's the message, not the messenger, that should excite us. Jesus died to save us, not Paul or Apollos. See, Paul might have stuck the letter in the mailbox, but it was Jesus who had written it and who had put it in the envelope and who had assigned it its address and who paid for the postage. He had even softened the hearts of the Corinthians to receive the message. 
You see, Christianity is all about Jesus. Never forget that. It's all about Jesus. And this is why I am deliberately non-denominational. Oh, it's true. I'm part of a family of churches called Calvary Chapel. And that name means something. It stands for a set of distinctive values and that shape who we are and what we believe. But one of those distinctives is a humble approach to the rest of the body of Christ. The last thing Calvary Chapel wants to do is to accentuate our differences so that they eclipse our commonalities. It should be enough for any church or group of churches to simply identify themselves as Christian. To emphasize any other tag or label or association only diminishes the importance of our connection to Christ. Hey, we're Calvary Chapel, but we don't run around making a big deal about it. First and foremost, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And this is a wonderful picture to which the Corinthians could relate. In Corinth, it was Paul who had planted the seed of the gospel in the hearts of the Corinthians. After Paul had departed, Apollos was the one who came in and picked up where Paul had left off. Yet in Ephesus, the roles had been reversed. Apollos had planted the seed, and it was Paul who came later to water and to weed. But here's the point. Both the planting and the watering were the simple procedures. In the first century, a planter, he would roll up his cloak, he'd cradle the seed, and then he'd just toss it out into the furrows. To water a crop, you took a shovel and you dug trenches, and then you sort of reshaped the trenches so that you could direct the water where you desired. But again, both tasks were simple. Anybody could water or could throw seed. I love what commentator John Phillips says about verse 6. He says, nothing could be simpler than sowing and watering. Anyone could do it. It took little or no skill. Then came the hard part, the mysterious part, the impossible part. The dry seed germinated. There was life there. Tiny roots went down. Tiny shoots showed. A miracle had taken place. We call it nature. It is God. God at work giving the increase. The miracle of life occurred. God alone transforms a seed into a globe of juicy, edible, delicious fruit. And so, who plays the key role? The planter? The waterer? Obviously neither. The partner in the process that does the heavy lifting is God, the life giver himself. And this is just as true in the spiritual realm as it is in agriculture. What happens in the dirt is what happens in our hearts. Oh, we sow the seed of God's word in a person's mind. Then we sprinkle it and water it with love. But the miracle of the new birth is in God's hands. It is his spirit who converts. Remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. The rabbi didn't understand. Jesus had to tell him, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who works the miracle part. We can sow, we can water, but the mystery of life 
like the mysterious wind. Our salvation, the increase as Paul calls it, is not in human hands. It's always a spiritual work. Once there was an agricultural school in Iowa that studied the ingredients needed to to grow 100 bushels of corn on a single acre of land. Here's a partial list of what it required. 4 million pounds of water, 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of sulfur, and the list goes on and on. The agronomist estimated that less than 5% of what is needed to produce a crop of corn is supplied by the farmer. And the same is true in the spiritual harvest. We can sow the word into people's hearts, but we can't make it grow in a person's heart. Nothing happens eternally or spiritually unless the Spirit of God is involved. It's God who gives the increase, and thus it is God who deserves the glory. This was Paul's conclusion. He says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I love what Alexander McLaren said about this squabble between the so-called Paulites and Apollosites. He said, so what was the use of fighting over which of two nothings was the greater? Oh, the messenger plays a role. Amazingly, God uses us, but it's God who ultimately pulls the strings, not us. I remember a man who prayed for and witnessed to his friend for years. I mean, he sowed and watered faithfully. And his prayer was finally answered. A stranger came up to the man and shared the gospel. The man heard it in a a strong way and and prayed the prayer. and He was saved. But the man who had been praying for his friend for years got mad. He was upset that he wasn't the one to lead his friend to Christ. A stranger got the opportunity. But you see, this was the kind of selfishness that had flourished in Corinth. Rather than rejoice in the results, it was all about me. Certainly God uses us to touch people's lives at different points, but the how and when and where we're employed is not our issue. It's up to God. Without exception, it's the Spirit of God who works the miracle. Verse 8 is an amazing verse. It says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. As as McLaren called them, the planter and the waterer are two nothings. Their contribution is minimal. I mean, who among us can't tell another person what Jesus has done for us? Who can't do that? Surely you can. Who can't love on someone else that Jesus died to save? Surely we can do that. Yet here's what's amazing. God chooses to reward us eternally for playing even our nominal role. Notice Paul says the planter and the waterer are one. They're on the same team. They share the same goal. They serve the same boss. There's no need for them to form cliques or to polarize over lesser matters. We work together. But then notice, we're rewarded individually. Paul states, Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We'll receive our own reward since we'll be judged by different criteria. 
See, it's not like we're all salesmen with the same sales quota. Some of us have been given more responsibility than others. Some of us have greater gifts. Some of us have been placed in more strategic places. This is why similar results don't equal identical rewards. The key for each of us is to be faithful to our calling. And this is why faithfulness to God in your life may look very different than it does in my life. For one person, faithfulness is going overseas. To another person, it's walking next door. For some, it's giving all. For another, it's learning how to tithe a tenth of their income. For some, it's a grueling task. To another, it's a refreshing break. This is why Paul explains to us each one will receive his own reward. But the glorious truth is that we all will receive a reward for our Christian service. You know, it's strange, but there are some folks who recall at this idea. They're too spiritual for such a lesser motivation. Oh, they say that we should want to serve God because we love Him, not because we're baited with some self-serving reward. Oh, and I agree. Let's serve the Lord because we love Him. No doubt about that. But let's not pretend to, to be more spiritual than we are. Let's not feign some hyper-spirituality that expects more out of us than the Lord requires. Well, the God knows us, and He has promised us rewards. He knows that rewards are a great motivation for the Christian. It is for me. I want to rack up as many as I can. Reminds me of the man who woke up one morning and he went outside to retrieve his newspaper. When he opened the door, he found a strange dog on his doorstep with a paper in his mouth. Well, he was delighted with the unexpected delivery service, and so he gave the dog a few treats. The next morning when he opened the door, again, there was the dog. But this time the man was horrified. Surrounding the dog was a couple of dozen newspapers. That dog had spent all morning gathering up those papers, and he spent the rest of the morning returning them to his neighbors. Apparently, those treats were a tremendous motivation for that dog. As are God's treats for us. You know, C.S. Lewis suggested that we don't put enough stock in the rewards that God has promised us. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he reminds, of our, reminds us of our stunted ambition. He says, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, we get enchanted with the world's treasures and the world's ambitions. They're just mud pies, friends, compared to what God has promised us. If we only understood the meaning of the rewards that God has promised us, oh, we wouldn't be making excuses and giving in to half-heartedness and sitting on the sidelines. We would be spending all of our time expending every ounce of our energy straining for the prize. Revelation chapter 4, it fast forwards to a time yet future when you and I and all the saints are around God's throne. Imagine being there. We're caught up in the worship of God, caught up in His glory. And there He is, 
the lamb slain for you and me. We can see his scars. We're awash in his love and grace. For the first time in our existence, we now fully, we're fully cognizant of what Jesus has done for us. The gratitude we feel is overwhelming. All that we can think about now is what can we give him in return for all that he's done for us. That's when you look over and you see out of the corner of your eye those 24 elders. They're laying their crowns down at Jesus' feet. That's it! I'll give him a crown! But you see, those crowns were the rewards that you could have received but didn't because you didn't have the time or you didn't care or you were just too tired. Jesus has given us so much don't finally get to the place where you can give back to him and have nothing to give. Your greatest regret will be to have no reward that you can turn around and return to Jesus. In the words of the old hymn, must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet the Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Of course, the answer is no. We don't have to meet Jesus empty-handed. We can do our part. We can sow and water, and God will give the increase. Paul finishes verse 8. He says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Even though we're the two nothings, all we do is sow and water, God still calls us his fellow workers. Did you know we're partners with God? We're stockholders in God's kingdom. One day we'll reign and rule with Jesus. Even now, we're allowed to serve Him and serve with Him. We're God's fellow workers in the harvest. But we're also God's field. That's interesting to me. That He not only works through us, but He's working in us simultaneously. We're His fellow workers, but we're also His field. He's sowing seed in our lives that He intends to bear great fruit. And you know what this means? It means we need to ask ourselves... Are we fallow ground or are we fertile ground? Some of us are crusty and dusty. You know, we're like dirt in a drought. God could break off a pick head on your heart. That's why we all need to cultivate a heart of repentance. We need to moisten our heart. We need to be receptive to what God has for us. We're God's fellow workers. We're God's field. But now, Paul changes the metaphor. He goes from agriculture to architecture. For you and I are also God's building. And he adds in verse 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Now every architect knows that the span and the strength and the height of a building depends on the density of its foundation. In other words, if you want to build up, you first have got to dig deep. The foundation is the most vital part of the structure. And the same is true in spiritual construction. Paul had planted a church in Corinth, and in doing so, he was building a structure, a temple, a house for God. And he had paid special attention to its foundation. You know, when we poured the slab down here in the lower parking lot, we knew that one day we would erect a building of some sort on that spot. And so we poured that foundation so that it would be, have more 
than enough strength to support any structure we might have wanted to build on it. And this is what Paul did. He calls himself a wise master builder. The Greek term he uses is architecton, from which comes the English word architect. Paul was smart. He had laid a solid foundation on which God could erect whatever size or type building he might choose. Of course, at the time, the church in Corinth probably consisted of several house churches, just a few groups of people scattered around the city. I'm sure they came together for wonderful Sundays from time to time, but usually they just met in their homes. And yet when Paul laid the foundation for this church, he wasn't thinking of a few simple house churches. He was laying a strong enough foundation on which God could build a growing church for years to come, an active church, even a sending church. For he tells the Corinthians, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here is the foundation on which every church should be built. Jesus Christ. Build a church on Jesus and there are no limitations to what God can do. Lean on Jesus. Learn of Jesus. Worship Jesus. Follow Jesus. Serve Jesus. Lift up the name of Jesus. Study the words of Jesus. Enjoy the grace of Jesus. Every church built on Jesus will remain Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And yet, let me warn you, not every church today is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Just saying so, don't make it so. Some churches are built on personalities. It's all about the the guy up front. Some churches are built on provocative sermons, try to shock the crowd. Some, Some churches are based on polished music or social activism, or maybe a family emphasis, or perhaps charismatic phenomena, or maybe even a political agenda. Build on anything other than Jesus, and you are building on a shaky foundation. Jesus alone is the solid rock. A ministry that lasts is one that keeps pointing people to Jesus. Now go back to the last sentence in verse 10. For here Paul pins... But let each one take heed how he builds on it. You see, when it comes to Christian ministry, our foundation is Jesus. But when you're building, you don't just stop with the foundation. The footings are simply the starting point. Afterwards, there's flooring and there's walls and windows and doors and then gables and a roof and wiring and plumbing, etc., etc. A structure begins to rise from that foundation. The founding work begins to determine the further work. And this is where you and I come in. The foundation is Jesus. Then a church gets planted and a soul gets saved and teenagers get discipled and the kids start being taught and missionaries are sent out and a ministry begins to grow. But Paul cautions us, whatever we build for Christ's sake Let each one take heed how he builds on it. In Gwinnett County, when you go to erect a building, you can't just pour concrete and start slapping up walls. You have to obtain a building permit. I don't think you can build a doghouse in Gwinnett County without a permit. 
And getting that permit involves drawing up detailed plans that comply with local building codes. You have to get a master builder, an architect, to approve them. And God also has his building codes. You see, in serving God, there are guidelines that Jesus expects us to follow. One of the first rules in serving the Lord is this. The ends never justifies the means. See, it's not just what you do for God that matters, but it's how you do what you do. Just because something is done in the name of Jesus doesn't mean the Lord is necessarily pleased. You know, sometimes our motive or our methods undermine our ministry. Some people serve God, but for their own glory. Other people try to do things for God, but they bully and pressure and mistreat people in the process. Hey, behave in ways that Jesus would have never act. And though you say you might be serving God, you're actually doing more harm than good. I grew up in a church that for a time had a very domineering pastor. But I can remember people justifying him, excusing him. Oh, yeah, he's a little heavy-handed. He can abuse his authority at times. Oh, but he leads a lot of people to Christ. Guys, that's no excuse. The end doesn't justify the means. As Paul writes in verse 10, let each one take heed how he builds. Daniel Webster once put it, my greatest thought is my accountability to God. May that be true of us all. And this was Paul's thought. He writes in verse 12 of the ultimate accountability. He says, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Christian service is entrusted to us. We're God's fellow workers, but our service is one day going to be tested by Jesus. See, here again, Paul takes us into the future. And he describes a day that awaits every one of us who are in Christ. Realize the Bible describes four types of judgment. First is the judgment of sin. This has already happened. On Calvary's cross, Jesus endured our punishment and paid the penalty for our sin. Faith in Jesus now puts an end to our sin. Sin has been judged on the cross of Jesus. For folks in Christ, the cross is sin's final judgment. The Christian is now forgiven and his sins have been forgotten. There's a second judgment. This is the judgment of societies. For throughout history, God acts in time and space, to bring justice and to punish evil. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, the exodus from Egypt, the fall of Babylon, the crumbling of Rome, the defeat of the Nazis, the collapse of communism have all been acts of God. Throughout history, the providence of God has intervened at times and in ways to bring judgment. And this should concern America today. For in a nation that has condoned the killing of the unborn and has now redefined God's terms for marriage, don't you think for a heartbeat we can escape God's judgment? Unless we repent, we will be 
in line for that as well. Joel chapter 2 says that the ultimate judgment of societies occurs in Jerusalem's Kidron Valley at the end of time, the Valley of Decision. Matthew 25 describes how God will judge the nations, but He will judge them. The third type of judgment is the judgment of sinners. Again, Revelation 20 speaks of this ominous day, a day yet future, at the end of the age, when everyone who has ever lived will stand before God's great white throne of judgment and give an account of the deeds that they've done on earth. Now, as Christians, breathe easy. For this is the judgment that will escape. Our sin was judged on the cross by what Jesus did. But if you reject Jesus, you'll be judged by the deeds you've done. That's a judgment you don't want. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thus, our choice is either to fall on God's mercies now or stand on our own merits then. Hey, friend, I choose mercy. I hope you do too. There is a judgment of sin and of societies and of sinners, but there is also the judgment of our service. And this is the judgment that the Christian won't escape. For as well as being a child of God, we are also God's fellow workers. You see, you have a role to play in what God is building in the world. The foundation is Jesus, and each of us adds to the construction. But as Paul says here, let each one take heed how he builds. Our work will be inspected. And over the years, I've participated in several building projects. You develop your plans, you pull the permit, you break the ground, but you're not done with the county, not yet. For after every phase of the construction, you've got to call in for an inspection. The county wants to make sure that the work is being done right. And this is how God feels about His work. Even now the Holy Spirit is checking in on us, supervising our work for God. He convicts us when we steer off the course. He corrects us when we need it. He's working with us along the way. But there will come a final inspection. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul tells this church, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This word translated judgment seat is the Greek word bima. This was a word with which every Corinthian was acquainted. For in the city center of Corinth, at the main agora, or the marketplace, there was a raised platform. It was covered with blue and white marble. It had huge columns. There was an elaborate stage, intimidating thrones. This was the Bema. And it was from here that the local and regional and Roman officials all exercised judgment in various cases. In fact, Paul had been before this Bema seat. In Acts chapter 18, a group of Jewish antagonists in Corinth had risen up against Paul. They had hauled him to the Bema where he was inspected by the Roman governor, Gallio. The Jews had accused Paul of treason against the empire. But Gallio, a smart man, he saw that their beef was over religious issues, and he had Paul released. But Paul had stood before this bema. See, he knew the fear and trepidation that comes when you're under inspection. 
when your outcome is being decided. And he recognizes that this will be the experience of all Christians. Every one of us will one day stand before the Bema seat of Christ and our eternal rewards will be decided. Last year, while we were in Corinth, we visited this Bema seat in Corinth. Today, it's in ruins. It's an archaeological dig. But I tried to imagine myself in the Agora that day with Paul, standing there before the most powerful man in the region. There's actually a pole, a post, in front of the Bema seat. The person under inspection would stand by that post. If any sort of punishment was due, he'd be tied to it and flogged. If a reward was to be bestowed, he stood by it in honor. Every other year or so, in a locale not far away, the Greeks held an athletic competition similar to Athens Olympics. Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games. And it was here at this post, before this Bema seat, that the laurel wreaths were awarded to the deserving athletes. Now Paul foresees the day when you and I will stand before our Lord's Bema seat and receive from Him the rewards of our service. And Paul says the quality of the work will be tested. It will be revealed by fire. We're told in verse 13, the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Realize when it comes to what you've done for Christ, it's not the amount of what you've done that will be judged. It's not the appearance of what you've done, the flash and the splash. No, it is the heart behind your service that will be judged. It is our motive that matters. Jesus inspects our service to see of what sort it is. It's not the quantity, but it's the attitude that's sorted out. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, the verse I read earlier, when Paul says that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, that word bad doesn't necessarily mean evil. It means more worthless or useless. What's under inspection at the Bema isn't our salvation, but our service. When it comes to what we did for Christ, did we do it from the right motive? Or were we inspired by pride or self-promotion? Was our service for Jesus worthless or worthy? Was it useful or useless? You see, unbelievers will be judged by their works, whether good or evil. Christians are saved by faith, not works. But our acts of service after we're saved will be tested. God will reveal of what sort they were. He'll expose the true motive behind all our works of service. One day, it's all going to get sorted out. The times you taught Sunday school, grumbling because you had to get up out of bed early to babysit a bunch of snotty-nosed kids. Poof! Just going to be incinerated. Gone. The time you ushered and you hurried folks out the door so you could get home to watch the football game. Just fried. Paul says those acts of service will be like wood and hay and straw in the fire. Oh, they looked impressive going in. But the fire of God's holiness burns, burns them to ashes. Whereas the time you jumped out of bed eagerly to love those little ones with the love of Jesus. That time when you led worship with a smile. 
played something peppy. The time you shared your faith because you really cared about that person, when those acts of service pass through God's holiness, they'll come through unsinged, like gold, silver, precious stones. Oh, there's a lot that looks impressive on earth that will be exposed in the end as worthless in God's eyes. Whereas there are some deeds that escape our attention right now, but in heaven they'll be held up as precious to Jesus. Paul says in verse 14, If anyone's work which he has built on on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Paul realized the anxiety that accompanies any inspection, let alone this one. I mean, I get sweaty palms when I'm waiting on the county to sign off on the pavilion down. Imagine the nervousness we'll sense at the Bema Seat of Christ when eternal rewards are on the line. And this is why Paul assures us that this is not about our salvation. This is about our service. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. Everyone at the Bema Seat will be ushered into heaven, but not everyone will be bringing a reward with them. You see, some Christians will be saved, but suffer loss. They'll watch what the adoring crowd thought was being done for Jesus' sake go up in smoke. In the end, all of our pride and all of our self-centeredness, even what masqueraded as service for Jesus, will be incinerated. Heaven will never be defiled by any speck of our own self-glory. Realize eternal rewards are serious business. Again, you don't want to get to heaven and be infinitely grateful to Jesus and have nothing to give back to Him for all that He's done for you. That would be the worst of regrets. Hey, you don't want to be a sailor saved, but a ship sunk. Bible teacher Alan Redpath, he once shared how he had been a successful businessman. Uh, He was living a happy life, but God had called him into the ministry. And he said for, for weeks, for months, six words kept ringing through his head. A saved soul, a lost life. Oh, a saved soul, but a lost life. A saved soul, a lost life. He eventually concluded that's not what he wanted. In addition to a saved soul, he wanted a life that counted for God. And Alan Redpath obeyed God's calling on his life. Will you do the same? We're not just God's field and God's building. We're also God's fellow workers. We have a job to do. We're planting. We're watering. We're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Will you be faithful to God's call on your life? Will you serve Him from a pure heart? If you do, you'll enter into eternity with a bountiful reward.